0: You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. Outdoor Edge knows that providing a freezer full of meat is part of the reason we all hunt. And what better way to bring it full circle than to process your own wild game? Outdoor Edge provides a full lineup of traditional and replaceable blade hunting knives and complete wild game processing kits to bring your wild game from the field to the freezer. Visit OutdoorEdge.com and at checkout, enter the discount code NATION30 for 30% off. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market.
1: You're listening to the Average Conservationist Podcast brought to you in partner with 2% for Conservation. 2% for Conservation's mission is to create an alliance of businesses and individuals that ensure the future of hunting and angling by committing their time and dollars to fish and wildlife. 1% of your time plus 1% of your money equals 2% for Conservation. 2% helps businesses and people pair with conservation causes to support things that fit what they care about. Whether you're into fishing, hunting, or just getting outdoors... can help you not only start giving back to wildlife, but get certified for it. Getting 2% certified means you've made the same commitment as popular brands like Sitka, Stone Glacier, and Seek Outside in giving at least 1% of your time and dollars back to wildlife. But it's not just for outdoor companies. Breweries, contractors, coffee roasters, and even piano repair companies have earned 2% certification and stand out as leaders in their community for doing so. Businesses that are committed to conservation deserve your business when you shop. Learn more about 2% for conservation at fishandwildlife.org. That's fishandwildlife.org. What's up, everyone? Welcome back to the Average Conservationist Podcast, and I'm your host, Marcus Ewing. Today on the podcast, I am joined by Mark Kenyon, and many of you know Mark as the host of the Wire to Hunt podcast. Uh, Mark is also an author, uh, a conservationist, and while many of you that are familiar with the uh, Wire to Hunt podcast, um, instead of kind of spending this time and talking about, you know, whitetail hunting and some strategies and, you know, really trying to pick Mark's brain of... All the experience that he has uh, in that realm, um, we get to talk about uh, conservation today. Big surprise there, but what's uh, what's really cool about this conversation today is that you know conservation is one of those things that Mark has really put a big emphasis on um, in recent years, um, and has really tried to and has become um, really kind of a voice <coughs> for you know, wild places and wild things, um, you know, throughout the, the course of the conversation, we kind of talk about, you know, how Mark was really introduced to the outdoors, what that looked like for him, um, really where that conservation uh, ethic and mindset came from, um, how it was kind of instilled in, in him at a young age, um, and really how as he got older um, and became more immersed in the outdoors, how he kind of you know, started having these questions himself about, you know, where this, where we, we gained access and where all these wild places and wild animals and wild things came from. And so that led him down the path of writing uh, his first book, That Wild Country. Um, you know, from there we get to talk about, you know, some of his big takeaways that he's really um, kind of gathered or gained uh, throughout the course of you know becoming more involved in the conservation side of things, um, we also get to discuss uh, a recent trip uh, to Wisconsin to visit um, the the cabin of Aldo Leopold, um, one of the kind of forefathers of conservation here in America, and you know really what his takeaway uh, from that trip was, and you know really. One of the things that you'll you'll hear Mark talk about, and um, one of the things that I, I I loved about what he said was, uh, you know, it's it's average folks, it's average people um, like Mark, like you know any of you listeners out there, um, you know, we're the ones that are, are really help driving this change, and you know nothing is possible um, without the voices and the letters and all these these little things. Um, that us as conservationists are doing are what really help move the needle day in and day out and help us uh, continue to lead the charge and fight the good fight and you know really protect what's sacred to all of us. So, really awesome conversation. Um, so, episode ninety two, Mark Kenyon, uh, enjoy. Uh, today's episode is going to be brought to you by Stone Glacier. Uh, if you have not already. Head over to StoneGlacier.com. Uh, check out some of their latest packs that they came out with this year, uh, earlier this year, uh, as well as some new technical uh, apparel that they have. Uh, they're offering a ton of base layers, some mid layers, some outer layers. Uh, obviously, they had their their tents and, and uh, sleeping bags. You know, especially for the Western hunter, they really have um, anything that you can be looking for. Um, I run one of their packs, their bino harnesses. Or their vinyl harness. Um, I have a few of their uh, mid-layers, and really, it's all been, you know, it's, it's exceeded my expectations. Um, also, they're, uh, in recent weeks, they've dropped a couple new films. Um, if you download the Stone Glacier app, either on iTunes or Google Play, you can check out those films. Stay up to date with really everything that Stone Glacier has going on. Um, so be sure to head over to StoneGlacier.com. All right, with me today is fellow Michigan native, author, whitetail hunter extraordinaire, conservationist, and the host of the Wired to Hunt podcast, Mark Kenyon. Mark, how are you today? I'm good. Thanks uh, Thanks for having me on. Yeah. Excited to chat. Yeah, no, me as well. <clears throat> this is, I mean, for, it feels like for Michigan uh, hunters especially, like, to be able to sit down and kind of talk to you and pick your brain, like this is a big deal for me, right? Especially I'm, you know, I've only been doing the podcast for uh, coming up on two years here, but uh, to to I, I like had this nervousness like built up, you know, from the time that you were like, yeah, like let's let's shoot for for this day to sit down and record, and uh, yeah, so you got to bear with me here. Uh, you don't need to
2: be nervous at all. Uh, <laughs> it's so funny when people say that. To me, you know, I hear that every once in a while, and it's it's always, it is just how do I describe it? I'm just another dumb kid, just like anyone <laughs> else. Is how I feel at least, right? I feel like I'm. It feels like college was just yesterday. It feels like I'm still just that kid walking around trying to figure out what the hell I'm doing out here. Uh, like I'm 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 absolutely no different than you or anybody else. I just have you know. I guess I've just been dumb in front of a lot of people, <laughs> so that that might be my claim to fame. <laughs> but uh, but it, it's cool to be here. I'm excited to talk about this stuff, and uh, I feel just the same way as maybe you feel now when I talk to most people too. So uh, we're in the same boat, buddy.
1: Yeah. Well, I was going to ask you that. Like, I mean, so you've been you know hosting the podcast for years now. I mean, kind of especially as it pertains to you know the hunting hunting in general. Like, the Wired to Hunt podcast is kind of like this OG podcast, the way I look at it. Kind of a, a funny story. My brother-in-law, this was probably back in, oh gosh, 2009, maybe? He came, He went to Grand Valley. He comes home from, uh, like, college at some point, holiday, summer, and he's like, and he's a big white tail hunter as well. And he's talking to me. He's like, "Yeah, this guy that I like know that I I kind of know. I work with him um, a little bit. Like he started this blog called like Wired to Hunt." And at the time, I was just like, "Yeah, cool, man." Like I I just like I kind of I I and 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 I just kind of like blew it off. And then like maybe it was like a year or two later, and you you have to forgive me from the, the timing of all this stuff. But he was I was like, "Hey, man, have you heard of this Wired to Hunt podcast?" He's like that's the guy i was telling you about all those years ago i was like oh <laughs> all right well it all makes sense now
2: oh that's funny that's way back in the day the 2009 the beginning years the very early days uh that's impressive who, who's your you said this is your your brother or your friend who uh, my
1: brother-in-law his name is mike zundell mike zundell
2: gosh that doesn't ring a bell to me right now but it probably should
1: yeah um uh, <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome, though. He
2: was he was following it at the very beginning. Yeah, I, I launched Wired Hunt as a blog in the summer of 2008 while I was doing an internship in New York City, and then in the fall of '09, when I started my full-time job, is when I w- went hard on it. And so that was like when I was like, okay, I want to do this thing for real. I'm gonna try to make it into something, and I, I went pretty crazy at that point. So if he was if he was reading it back then, those were just like the the baby steps that started it all.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's gotta be, it's gotta be crazy for you to kind of look back over the past, you know, almost 15 years now, since you, you know, first started wire to hunt to see, you know, where it's come to. I mean, did you ever in a million years think that this was kind of where you're going to end up or was this always the end goal uh, or, you know, at least to this point, I guess. And like, you just head down and just keep grinding. You know, if,
2: If we rewind just a little bit to like those college years 2005 through 8, uh, I would have said no, no way. I'd had like a desire to do something within the world of hunting, like, I love that stuff so much, but it was very, you know, never really looked at as realistic. Uh, the fall of 2009, though, was when I kind of got this inspiration and kind of got tapped into a couple of resources that made me believe I could actually do it. So, in the fall of 2009, That's when I said, like, I can do this, I believe it, and I'm gonna do it. And so at that point, I did believe it. Now, what it looks like now, you know, 13 or 14 or however many years it is now, what the reality of it looks like is way different than I would have thought back then. But me doing something like this, at that point, I thought I could.
1: Yeah. And it, it feels like you were really kind of ahead of the game. Like I said, I mean, as far as hunting podcasts, I mean, it seemed like you were putting out um, content that was especially so relevant to so many people here in the Midwest and, and, you know, more specifically here in Michigan. You, you know, were telling all these stories and, you know, um, you know capturing and going into detail on, you know, the many name bucks that you've had over the years in the pursuit of those. Um, it's, it's really cool to see, you know, from afar and a fan of the podcast and, and the content that you're putting out to to see the evolution and to see how much it's grown and evolved and then how you've kind of encompassed you know so many other topics aside from just whitetail hunting into the wired to hunt podcast yeah yeah i mean that's that's i guess that's been the trajectory
2: right is it started as a single-minded focus on you know back in those early years 2008 in 2009 I was just trying to figure it out myself I mean, yeah I, I really was and so it was like hey this is follow along with my journey as I try to figure out how the heck to kill a deer <laughs> and um, you know slowly it, it grew from there to okay now I can do it and now how do we do it consistently and then it was like okay how do we kill a three-year-old buck in Michigan or a four-year-old or how do I learn how to kill this one specific buck and so yeah people got to follow along as, as I kind of grew as a hunter and then to your to your point you know as as my journey branched out from just like, how do I become a good deer hunter to how do I become a more responsible outdoorsman to how do I, you know, become a, a conservationist who can give back as much as I've taken from the natural world. And, and, you know, that has, has been where things have grown more and more and more over recent years as, as I, um, as I have become even more passionate about that side of things too. So, so yeah, the the kind of breakdown of what my life looks now Is way different than what I would have thought 15 years ago when the dream at that point was just I want to deer hunt a lot uh, and kill big deer like that was maybe the dream 15 (laughs) years ago and now it's uh, you know how do I protect these places and these animals and this lifestyle that I love so much that's the big thing that I'm really trying to focus more and more of my work on um, while of course trying to help a lot of people along the way on their own journeys as hunters and as all-around outdoors people and, and conservationists too, so um, that's been the, the the path I guess so far.
1: Yeah, and it, I I think to to touch on what you just said there, I think it certainly shows um, you know kind of the the different things that you've added um, to your repertoire, so to speak, or your your um, bag of tools, like with um, you know reaching out to or you know spreading the message about. Um, conservation, um, how to become, you know, stewards of the land, things like those, or excuse me, things like that. So I kind of want to take a step back here. And I know you've probably talked about this uh, at length on on various other podcasts on your own podcast. But for my listeners, who I think might be a little bit different than you're kind of, hardcore whitetail hunters or hardcore Western hunters, because, you know, with the Average Conservationist podcast, and we were talking to, to all sorts of, you know, businesses and individuals who have really put an emphasis on conservation. So take me all the way back to, I mean, what first got you introduced to the outdoors?
2: So that was, you know, that was my family that I was raised in from an early age, um, as early, as far back as I can remember the stuff we did for fun was, was outside. Um, we didn't go on vacations to fancy resorts or to the city <laughs> to go watch a play. Um, if we were going to go on vacation, it was to go camping somewhere. Probably. Uh, if I was going somewhere over the weekend, it was probably going to go to our family cabin up in Northern Michigan to go hunting or fishing or whatever. Um, and so that really came from, you know, my dad and uncles and grandpa, who had, you know, this, this strong tradition of hunting and fishing that I got pulled into. I think, you know, I think it was around three years old when I went up to our cabin first. And so this kind of pilgrimage, this weekend pilgrimage, um, as often as we could possibly get up there to do those things just became a huge part of my life. Um, and then even outside of that, like I mentioned, it was, if we were traveling somewhere, it was to go camping on Lake Michigan and go fishing or swimming. Or it was if we did go on a big trip, it was like going out west to a national park and doing that kind of stuff. So early on, I mean, that was what we did. We, we went outside, we hiked, we camped, we fished, we hunted, and I just fell in love with that stuff right from the get-go. Um, and it just got more and more and more uh, consuming as I got older.
1: Yeah, I mean that – so my my upbringing is very similar. Like it it, it 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 is a very um common uh upbringing especially here, you know, not only in Michigan but um the Midwest as well. Is you know, I was I was the same way like we didn't take these big fancy vacations growing up. I mean, I recall um taking like our spring break like my family would like pack into this like big conversion van and we'd drive to Colorado and we'd go skiing. In the summer we would like go out west and we'd do like a fly fishing trip. Uh, to different parts like of Colorado or Montana or something like that. So like everything we did, yeah, was all centered around the outdoors. And I feel like at a young age, that just lays like such a, a good foundation for, you know, kind of continuing on and then really gaining that appreciation and having just this whole kind of other side of your life or, or this other aspect of life that is, it's really hard to explain to someone else if, if they have an ep- haven't actually done that before yeah yeah i mean to what you said
2: a second ago we're, we're so lucky to have been raised in those kinds of families and places where we could do that kind of stuff um, because i feel you know you, you got to feel really bad for the majority of people in our country or in across the world really who grow up in super urban places and never even know the stuff's out there never even get to experience things never get to enjoy the Insane number of benefits of having an outdoor lifestyle. So, uh, man, I'm, I'm super thankful I was born in the family I was, and in the place I was, and I got to enjoy a pretty darn good uh, life because of it.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So now, f- growing up in the outdoors family, um, and then was the conservation side of things. Was it? Was that ever talked about with you know your dads and your uncles and your grandpas, or was it? more of kind of leading by example and things that they did when they were in the woods that you just, you, you saw that and you realized that these are probably the way I, this is the way I should be, um, you know, acting when I'm out there. And these are the, the things that I should be doing. I mean, what did that kind of understanding of, of, you know, that early understanding of conservation look like?
2: Yeah. You know, that's something I've been trying to think about more myself is trying to remember, you know, where these values Came from. Um, and I don't think, you know, it wasn't, as far as I can remember, it wasn't something that explicitly was discussed or preached within my family. Like, I, I don't remember having conversations with my dad or grandpa really about anything when it came to, um, you know, conservation at a big level. You know, really never. I can't remember ever having conversations about the topics of environmental issues or conservation issues right. nationally or legislation or anything like that. That wasn't something that I was being taught about. Um, but I do remember kind of uh, under the surface, a lot of the values that were passed down to me and preached were kind of in line with a conservation ethic of sorts, I, I especially – from my grandpa and then my dad by virtue of what he learned from my grandpa. It was just so important to respect the land. Like respect was this really, really big, important thing. Like we respected the animals when we were hunting them, when we fished, anything had to be, had to be treated with respect. Um, so when it came to how we hunted, when you would take a shot, when you wouldn't take a shot, what you would do with the animal afterwards, it was, it was really close to sacred, uh, the way it was discussed, the way we approached it. Um, you know, if, if anybody came into our orbit who didn't treat the animal in that kind of way or didn't treat the landscape in that kind of way, uh, my grandpa being like the patriarch of the family and of our camp up there, you know, he would come down with a wrath of God on you <laughs> if you were to disrespect. Um, like there is this, this story I remember, not story, I was there. I think I was, oh, I don't know, seven, eight, nine years old, something like that. And a friend of an uncle's came to our hunting camp and was up there for opening, opening weekend. And this guy saw a buck running across in front of the cabin or something and started taking like pot shots at this buck, like running across the field and took multiple shots at the running deer, wounded it, and never found it. And my grandpa went apocalyptic on him. Um, you know, it was, it was. It was a a mortal sin to shoot at a moving animal because you couldn't guarantee a quick ethical kill. You couldn't guarantee you weren't going to wound that animal. Um, That was something that was just never, never, never done with our family. And and that was, I think, a good example of this ethic of respect for wildlife and wild places that, you know, without my grandpa really going deep into things, he he made – it was just known to me at a, at a very deep level without him. having to say it all the time that, you know, we care for these things. We take care of these things. We, uh, we got to give back because look at all this great, look at all this value you get from being up here, from getting to eat these animals, from getting to fish for these animals, for getting to be in this forest. Uh, Um, so that idea of taking care of these things and respecting them and treating them with value and respect was, uh, was, was kind of the religion for my grandpa, uh, who wasn't a very religious person. um, and, and while the rest of my family was, we certainly had this, um, this other thing that we really, really, really cared deeply about. So that was where it came from. It wasn't until, you know, I started exploring these things as an individual later in life, you know, post-college really, where I started getting into understanding, you know, conservation at a higher level, understanding the history of how we have these places and animals, understanding what it takes to keep these places around, you know, that was just kind of, journey of self-discovery. As I got deeper and deeper into hunting, I also got deeper and deeper into how do we have these places? How do we have these animals? What's the story there? How did this all come to be so darn great? Um, And I just started learning and reading and listening and watching everything I possibly could. uh, And that, that took
1: me on this path I'm on now today. Yeah. And I think that that's almost, you know, for for anyone that that hunts or fishes or, or really just you know recreates in some way, shape or form in the outdoors, like that's almost kind of a natural progression, I think, is that you know you first get into whatever the activity is because maybe um, you know it's it's just something that's that's done in your family. Um, and then as you get older uh, and you start to do these things on your own a little bit more, um, and the the passion and the love for it really grows. and then it's like you almost hit this this next stage where you really want to have a a much broader understanding of what it is um, that you're doing out there. And and like you just said, how this all came together, you know, uh, how the the species and the herds and all these things are maintained, where the funding comes from. And I I mean, do you agree with that, that it's just almost like this progression that, you know, the older you get, the more wise you become, um, the more you have this curiosity for things. Yeah, I think I think that is a very common path.
2: I don't think that everyone goes that you know goes that way. I think some people get stuck in the hey, I want to kill a bunch of animals or catch a bunch of fish, and and that's kind of where they stay, uh, for better or for worse, depending on your opinion on it, I guess. Yeah. Uh, but I think many folks do move on. Not not they don't necessarily not enjoy those things still, but they, they want to have this next step of understanding or impact um, beyond that because they have this deep love for all those things. Um, so yeah, I think that's a super common trajectory.
1: Yeah. So as you kind of met, you, you mentioned it there, like with you, your own kind of self-discovery um, with these wild places and everything, the, the book that you wrote, That Wild Country, it's actually sitting right here in front of me. Tell me about that process because it, it really talks about, you know, it, it's kind of this, I don't even know, I mean, you're going to describe it way, way, way better than I am. It's your book. But, you know, what did that process look like for, to to write that book, to do all of the research and to kind of tie, you know, your your journeys and your adventures all together into, into that wild country? Well, you know, as I mentioned, you know, after...
2: I don't want to dive into too much history here. I guess the short version of it is that, you know, I was able to build Wired Hunt into, uh, for at first, what was like a side hustle, a way to kind of scratch my itch for wanting to talk about hunting and share hunting and, and do these things, right? I wanted to share those experiences, so I had the website. After four years of doing that in the side, I was able to go full-time with it. Um, and so, you know, I had a lot of goals around making this thing, you know, first it was, could I make a living from this thing? And then it was, can I, you know, make it bigger and make it, you know, reach a lot of people. And can I, you know, do really cool, fun things and help a lot of folks. And then, you know, around 2016, 15, 16, somewhere around there, I think, um, was when I started, you know, so this, at this point I've been doing it for, you know, two, three, four years full time. I started, you know, wondering, how do I make a positive impact? Like, how do I do something that really matters? You know, helping people have great hunts matters. I mean, I think I I feel like there's value in what I've done there and I've helped a lot of people. And, um, I think that's been great, but I started wondering, you know, how do I do something and give back on a, on a bigger level with these resources that I care so much about. So the whole thing we're talking about, right. I went, I had this trajectory where I started saying, well, how, how do I make sure that we have public lands to go explore, and how do I make sure we've got clean rivers, and how do I make sure there's healthy populations of deer, and all these things that I really would love my future kids to be able to enjoy, and that I'd like to keep enjoying, and and my friends, and all these other people, and like, how can I do something there? So I started having more and more questions, just kind of internally, when I lay down and go to bed at night, or sit at the computer in the morning, um, like, what can I do to make an impact at that level? And around that same time was when there was a series of pretty... Um, pretty dramatic anti-public land, um, proposals made and and legislation put on the floor and, and, and there was a strong momentum towards trying to transfer public lands or sell public lands. There was a lot of animosity towards, um, towards that kind of stuff. And, and so I was watching all this and experiencing all this while also, you know, Spending a ton of time on public lands and really falling in love with the wild places we have across the country and I was seeing this very dramatic very real-time example of something I love so much and something that so many of my peers love uh, being really truly threatened and and so I saw this opportunity like hey I have this thing that that we all love so much and it's it's deeply and and truly threatened right now Um, but I don't understand how we got here I don't understand how this is real, how this is possible that we might possibly lose these things. I don't really know how we got all these national forests and national parks and wilderness areas and state lands and all this kind of stuff. There's all these things that as I was uh, kind of having my eyes open to the threats, I was realizing I don't know the backstory. Uh, There's so much I wanted to learn. There was so much I needed to know if I could do anything to help. So as I started having those questions and realizing I had these questions, I kind of had the epiphany that I bet a whole lot of other people across the country are wondering the same thing. Yeah. And so I saw this opportunity to to go on this journey of learning myself and document it to share with everybody else out there who I imagine probably was in the same boat. You know, growing up, I had no idea that it was a special thing to have ten thousand acres of, of public land next to my cabin. I had no <laughs> idea that it was a special thing and hard one thing to have. Glacier National Park to go visit when I was nine years old and and see a grizzly bear up close and have this this transformative moment I never realized that was special or that that thing was not guaranteed or that a whole lot of people had to work really really hard to make that possible and to keep those places around um and so I set out you know I can't remember what year it was 2016 or 17 or somewhere around there I decided hey I'm gonna write a book about this I'm gonna learn about this stuff I'm gonna dive in deep and I'm going to write a book Uh, and a book, this was kind of a simultaneous epiphany I guess I had this epiphany that this is the book I would write while also having made a decision somewhere on that same time that a book was a thing I wanted to do like I loved reading I'm a reading nut uh, and I really enjoy writing and so the natural next step after having written for magazines and the web and different stuff, I realized I wanted to push myself to that next level so I decided a book was going to be that thing and at the same time, I realized there was this whole topic and issue that would fit really well in a book, um, and so I so I went for it. Um, that's that's kind of how it started. There's the whole you know business side of how do you get a book deal and how do you do all that. Um, so that all kind of happened following this set of realizations, um, and I was able to. I was really fortunate. I was able to. Was able to get a book deal and was able to go and you know take some stories that I'd or take some experiences that I'd already had and, and put put them on paper and then also go on a series of other adventures that would fit the story I wanted to tell and weave it all together to to kind of explore the history of our public lands, um, some of our present challenges with public lands and what that all tells us about the future. I was able to weave that kind of historical and, and kind of informational uh, timeline. Teaching this this important set of uh, important set of ideas, I was able to weave that in through a series of my own adventures on public land, hunting and fishing and camping and rafting and a bunch of other stuff like that. So that's that's what the book ended up being.
1: Yeah, no, and it's 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 an amazing book. And and for those listeners uh, who haven't checked it out, you you absolutely need to because it's it's like you said, it's this perfect combination of of history and storytelling. And the way that you're able to, to blend the two together and talk about, you know, maybe a national park or a national forest, and then, you know, weave in your own experience, you know, in said place uh, is really cool. And then it also, you know, for the reader, it, it kind of opens their eyes to the ease, really, of what we're able to um, or, or how we're able to enjoy these places. I mean, these are open to, you know, I mean, they're public lands for a reason. Um, it, it, I th- it think it's just almost criminal sometimes that people don't realize, um, you know, the different places and the different things that, that you can explore. That's all that's available for everyone. You know, not even necessarily, you know, in the Western states or Alaska or something like that, but, you know, right here in Michigan as well. Oh, yeah,
2: we we're we're some of the luckiest people in the world with the opportunities we have here and the places we have here you know like you said uh whether you live in new york state or new hampshire or montana or idaho i mean there is there is public land in one form or another and some kind of wild place to go explore uh within a easy day's drive for pretty much anyone in the country and uh that's not the case ever in the world so we we've got it
1: really good and we gotta make sure we keep it that way yeah no absolutely and one of the kind of the forefathers or or as you call them the godfather uh really of of kind of the whole conservation movement here in north america aldo leopold um you actually just um spent some time uh at his cabin in wisconsin uh recently so so tell me about that i mean what inspired that trip well
2: um it it kind of came by just by happenstance, well, sort of. I I had been working on um, a series of podcasts on Wired to Hunt of my own, uh, kind of revolving around a variety of different conservation topics. Um, It's kind of the off-season for deer hunting, of course, and this seemed like a good time to take a step back from the general how-to and get into the, uh, how is it we're so lucky to, and how do we make sure that we can still have these things? And so one of the episodes I did was a kind of profile- of Aldo Leopold because he's such a um, prominent and iconic figure within the world of conservation. Uh, so most environmentalists or many you know professional conservationists or folks within the wildlife management field, they know who he is. Uh, but I don't think that a whole lot of day-by-day hunters and anglers do. They maybe have heard his name because they watched they watch Eater or they read my book or they have seen the name here and there. Um, But I think there's a whole lot of people that still don't really understand why they keep hearing about Eldo Leopold. So I wanted to explore that and try to, you know, get a foundation of who this guy was and why he's still relevant today and why we keep talking about him, you know, 70 years after he died. Um, And so we we recorded this podcast with myself, uh, my friend Doug Durin and a gentleman by the name of Stanley Temple, who is a senior fellow at the Eldo Leopold Foundation. Uh, he was a professor at the University of Wisconsin, uh, the same role that Eldo Leopold held uh, during his later years in life, um, and he's a conservation biologist as well. So he's kind of followed in Leopold's footsteps, carried on his work into the future, and has, has studied Eldo's life and and kind of his legacy. So we chatted, you know, the three of us about Eldo, and then um, I happened to have a trip planned the next week to Wisconsin to do some some more you know, standard Wired Hunt video work. And I realized that I was going to be passing right by Eldo Leopold's old shack and the Leopold Foundation. And so I realized, geez, this would be perfect. I can stop by there, kind of see this place that I've for a long time wanted to see and connect with in person. Um, and it would be perfectly timed with this podcast that was going to come out last week as well. So, so that's what I did. Got to visit the Eldo Leopold Foundation Visitor Center and get to see a whole bunch, bunch of great kind of uh, educational materials and and different kind of artifacts from Leopold's life and got to speak with a couple people from the foundation and then finally go to his property, his old farm where he brought his family out to the shack where he wrote, where they planted trees, where they you know did all the things that a family does on their weekend trips into the wild. You know what was the the wilds of Wisconsin back then. So got to. You know, interact with a place that was really special and that Eldo had written about so beautifully, and that had inspired a lot within his famous book, *A Sand County Almanac*. So uh, it was very cool to get to kind of physically interact with a such a meaningful place in person.
1: Yeah, I mean that's kind of, uh, I mean it's kind of for for a lot of you know really truly passionate conservationists. Uh, I mean that's kind of like the mecca, right? Being able to to step foot in that place and to to see um you know how someone who inspired so many future generations um you know how they lived you know what their surroundings looked like i mean is there is there anything that you learned in your trip there that uh maybe you didn't know uh prior to your visit you know it wasn't necessarily learning anything new
2: um you know i would studied eldo pretty thoroughly because i wrote about him in my book um you know i've read his his i read his book i read his essays so i, I dove deep down that wormhole but I think what the visit really did for me was, yeah, I don't, it, it just, it just brought to, hmm, it made it real for me the impact that a single person can have. I, I just remember thinking, of walking out there and walking, you know, along this trail that goes back behind his shack, underneath these old pines, and and just the, the unbelievable power that each one of us has as an individual in one form or another to make a difference um, is inspiring. Sometimes it can feel like there's nothing we can do. Sometimes it feels like events around us are conspiring against us and we're (laughs) just these little tiny ants in the middle of this massive sandbox that uh, we're just kind of living inside of and there's puppeteers around outside of us that are actually controlling what's going on. But I was able to walk underneath a stand of trees that were 100 feet tall or more, massive pine trees that were shading this property, uh, beautiful trees that just made this landscape uh, stunning. And a single person, Eldo Leopold, planted those trees with his own hands You know, 80 years ago or 90 years ago, just the simple act of putting a seed in the ground and pushing a, a little bit of dirt over top of it, like that being one physical manifestation of the impact that a, per- a person could have. And then also thinking about, man, this guy was just a normal guy. He was no different than me. Uh, just a, just a dumb kid. Like I said, <laughs> at the beginning <laughs> who was coming out here and taking his family to this little shack, this very humble little place and trying to show his kids how to, how to plant a tree, how to take care of this little bit of ground they had and try to make it a little bit better. Um, he was, was a single person, a, a, just a, just a person. I I think that's what I kept coming back to is he was just a person, but he was able to stand up a couple times and, and make some noise about stuff that really mattered. He was able to put some ideas onto paper and still now 80 years later, they live on. He's immortal because of the fact he was willing to take the time to talk about the stuff he cared about and to try to do something about it and now still today we're sitting here talking about him and we're enjoying many of the things we have now because of him and because of people like him and I guess it just gave me a little bit of encouragement to keep trying to do what little that I can as a single individual person because you know maybe I can plant a tree that grows into something really special a hundred years from now too or whatever that might be literally or figuratively uh I think that was the thing that stuck with me the most.
1: Yeah. And that's that's such a great takeaway, too, because I mean, I don't really want to repeat what you said, but it's so often that we don't think that as a as a single person, you know, an individual that that we can have this grand um, or we can that we're going to have this huge impact. Right. And that's I mean, that's what I say at the end of every um, episode is conservation starts with you. Right. It just it's just it's making a change you know, doing the things that you can control, not worrying about kind of these outside factors um, and, and just keeping your eye on the prize. I mean, if if your one goal, let's say, as a, as a parent and a conservationist is to just teach your kids, you know, the, the right way to do things, the right way to be, a, you know, to be a steward of the land, to respect animals, you know, respect these wild places, you know, treat them like they're not going to be there forever. And, you know, who knows, maybe you know, maybe when they get older, maybe they're the next Aldo Leopold, right? Or, 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 you know, they're the next, you know, Theodore Roosevelt. I mean, they're they're the next person to make this huge movement and these huge gains in conservation. And it, you know, it's it, it's truly, um, you know, fascinating to see what one single person, like you said can do and the impact that they can have when at the time they're probably not thinking about that. Right. They're not thinking about, you know, what's this going to be in 90 years? You know, are two guys from Michigan going to be sit down talking about me on a podcast (laughs) or, 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 you know, and it's just really kind of the, the life cycle of that is, is truly remarkable. Yeah. Yeah, it really is. And I think an important thing that I,
2: that I need to always remember too, is that, you know, we're not all going to be Eldo Leopold's or Theodore Roosevelts or whoever's Bob Marshall's. Uh, there's only a handful of those in any generation, and we should not feel any less empowered to do the little, to do whatever we can do, despite the fact that we might not be the person that's you know written about a hundred years from now. But none of the things that Leopold accomplished, none of the things that Roosevelt accomplished, none of that was done. Just by virtue of their single actions, their accomplishments, the things that we attribute to what they did is is always, always uh, preempted by or at least a part of a larger movement of individuals. So there's no way that Roosevelt is able to drive all of the dramatic conservation victories he had across the finish line in. Unless there was an upswell of support from regular people, too, that were willing to give him the political capital to do that kind of stuff. Same thing in the 60s and, and really the 70s when the whole environmental movement really made a made a big difference. Things like the Clean Water Act, um, things like the Wilderness Act, things that really, really dramatically created the protected and conserved public landscape we have now. These things happened back then. Because there was a bunch of individuals who said, yeah, this stuff matters. I'm going to stand up and talk about it. I'm going to call my senator and talk about it. Um, That couldn't have happened just because, you know, Stuart Udall was like, "Okay, this is the right thing to do and we're going to do it. He couldn't (laughs) do that unless there was support on the ground. There has to be people that do the things on the ground. People have to go and vote. People have to go and sign the petition. People have to go and make the phone call. People have to go to the river and pick up the trash. All of those little things matter. None of the big stuff happens without little stuff. That was one of the really, really important lessons I learned as I dove into the history of our you know, public lands and the history of conservation in America. There's these big headliner names that stand out, of course, but once you go like one layer deeper, you realize that there's there's all of these other people and all of these little movements and all of these different examples of of average people really making the difference. And, and the same thing is still true today. You, know, you look at something like the Great American Outdoors Act the past last year, two years ago, whatever it was now, um, you know, hailed as as a really significant win for public lands and conservation in America. And it happened um you know, at a time when there was a bunch of other things going on that weren't so good for public lands or for the environment, other uh, laws being pushed, other proposals or regulations being removed that weren't so good. And so folks are like, well, why all of a sudden did these handful of senators all of a sudden get on board with this? Or Why all of a sudden did the president decide to sign this bill after earlier he, he, he was totally removing any budget from these types of funds? Now all of a sudden they're all for it. Well, hey, you know why? because a whole bunch of people, average people like you and me, made it a political necessity. We forced the issue. We made enough noise, made enough phone calls, made enough emails, went to enough events where all of a sudden politicians realized, okay, these are issues that we need to get on board with if we want to get voted back into office. Uh, and that wasn't just because of some elderly upholed figure. That wasn't just because of one single person that was famous or something. This is because a bunch of people doing the whatever they can made this a thing that had to happen and so that is I think that I think is just so important to remember that whether you can write a book or you can write a letter or write a tweet every one of those matters we each have got to do whatever it is that we have the capacity to do Um, and it all adds up it all adds up and it all helps Um, I, I think it's easy sometimes for me even to think gosh what can I do and I just need to remember that the next right thing, like just do the next thing. Do something. Yeah. I can't fix it all in one fell swoop. I can't flip the switch and take care of this problem or that problem. But I can do something today, or I can do something tomorrow. And let's just keep doing that. Yeah. Um that's that might be the the trick right there.
1: Yeah, and that's I mean, that's kind of the whole idea behind the average conservationist, right? Is, you know, while You have all these amazing, you know, three, four letter um, conservation organizations out there that are, you know, you know, doing all these great things for whether it's public lanes or or, um, something that's more species specific. Um, Those those groups, though, you know, BHA, RMEF um, NDA, you know, all these organizations are made up of a bunch of average conservationists, right? There, it's a bunch of people who are passionate about something. They use their nights, their weekends, um, whatever the case is to, to get out, uh, and hunt or to fish or to, you know, go pick up trash at a cleanup or, uh, you know, volunteer for a goat survey or whatever the case is. And and those are the people, like you just said, that are moving the needle. Those are the ones that are, are really keeping this, this conservation movement that we've seen, um, you know, very prominently over the past, you know, five, eight, 10 years, uh, you know, those are the ones that are, you know, the engine that's kind of, you know, keeping this boat going in the right direction.
2: Those are the real heroes right there.
1: Yeah. The unsung real heroes. Absolutely. So the, as you've gotten you know, more involved in conservation uh, and it's become uh, something that you've put more of an emphasis on, uh, on your side of things, you know, what has kind of been your biggest takeaway, I guess, from, you know, just becoming more immersed in the the world of conservation?
2: I think it, it kind of goes back to a lot of what we just talked about. Um, I think there's, there's two, I guess the first thing is this, the more you start to pay attention To the world of the more you start to pay attention to the natural world and conservation and the state of our environment, the more you start reading about that, watching things about it, studying it, getting tapped into it, uh, the more it becomes easy to become depressed because there is a lot of concerning news out there. For example, 25% of all the manatees in Florida, this great, big, incredible mammal, 25% of them. Gone last year. Gone. Population reduced by twenty five percent in twelve months. And it does not look the prospects are much better moving to the future. This is the an extinction of a great big huge charismatic animal that a lot of people learned about as kids and have seen on TV and folks that live down there, I'm sure, have a much more engaged relationship with this animal. It just seems unreal to me that something like that in America could be heading towards extinction right in front of our eyes. And most people have no clue. They're not paying attention at all. They just want to go and go on their next boat ride or whatever. Um, you know, there's, there's a million examples of that kind of thing. If you start paying attention, uh, back to Leopold, he said that the, I can, I, I really need to get the language of this correct, but it's something along the lines of the, the peril of an ecological education is living in a world of wounds. That meaning the the, the downside of starting to watch this stuff, starting to learn about this stuff, starting to pay attention to this stuff, the downside to all that is you start to realize that there are a whole lot of wounds all around us. And that can be depressing. That can be discouraging. That can be painful. That's awfully sad to see a lot of these things. So one temptation or one path you can take once you start going down this road is to lose hope is to become apathetic to what's going on thinking you know stuff's going to hell in a handbasket and I probably can't do anything about it and it just really really bums me out and so some people eventually just tune it out and they want to just turn it off and they want to throw their hands up in despair and say well what can little old me do in some days I feel that but what I keep going back to and what I think keeps me going is this this line from Yvonne Shenard who who says that the the only cure for depression, the best cure for depression is action. So anytime that I start feeling that way, anytime I start getting discouraged by everything I'm seeing or even something I'm working on, um, the only cure for that depression is action. So just do something. Is there something I can do today? Is there something I can do tomorrow? I know I can't solve the whole problem now, but what can I do? What little step can I take in the right direction? Doing that can help not only the larger issue, not the lar- not only the larger picture, but also even just helps you as an individual get through the day and live a fulfilling life. So I think that's the biggest thing is just doing something, doing whatever it is I can do, finding out what that thing is, finding out what my role can be and trying to do it. Um, knowing it's not the silver bullet, but knowing it's something, I think that's been my biggest takeaway. So I'm just going to keep on trying to do something And I'm going to keep learning and I'm going to keep caring and I'm going to keep trying to share that journey with folks. And I'm hopefully going to do something enough that, you know, 20 years from now, when my boys are old enough to be out there enjoying these places like I was a handful of years ago, they'll still have them and they'll be able to say, well, you know what, there's still something here worth fighting for to the future too. And they'll do something.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's, that's very well put because that was one of the things that I I was going to. I was going to ask you this follow-up question. You kind of answered it in your, in your response there was, you know, just how do, how do you stay on top of all this, right? Because, you know, especially in, in recent months, you know, certain states and, hunt, you know, certain, certain hunting regulations within certain states or, or seasons have come under attack. Um, and it, it just seems like uh, as hunters, as anglers, we're always, we're being um, reactive instead of proactive, Right. And, you know, I've had Jared Frazier, uh, the executive director for two percent on the podcast, you know, multiple times here. And and that's that's something that he said that's always stuck out to me is that we should, you know, work and strive to to get to a point where we're being proactive instead of reactive. And, yeah, some days that that seems like it is a, a you know, a, a dot that's so far off in the horizon, you can't even see it. But then there's other days, like you said, uh, or when uh, the Great American Outdoors Act was passed. And, you know, there was a time leading up to that where it seemed like that was not even that it wasn't possible. Um, And then, you know, through the act of of a lot of people, a lot of emails, voicemails, tweets, whatever the case is that, you know, we, we saw that, you know, be put into law. And I think that that's, you know, that having that mentality of staying the course, of, of just taking action and, and understanding, um, you know, what you can do is something that um, us as, you know, conservationists, outdoor recreationists, whatever whatever you will, uh, that's what we need to really focus on as we go forward.
2: Yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, you just, it's just being a dad, I, I read all these little kids books. It's like, we're, we got to be that little engine that could. You just got to keep on chugging. And doing what you can and keep on going up that hill, and uh, every little bit counts.
1: yeah, I mean, how has that? and that's one of the things that it was kind of a a, a real pivotal turning point for me is is when I became a father, and I have two young kids uh, as well. but you know for me, it was you know, as I, I had kids, and they got to the point where you know I could take them outside and you know, after ten minutes, they didn't want to come back in because it was too cold or they were bored or whatever the case was. You know, when, when they can actually enjoy the outdoors, then like this light bulb kind of went off in my head. It was like, it, it takes me back to when I was a kid and all those times that I spent outdoors with, with, with family and with friends. And I want them to have that same experience that I did and be able to, to hunt or to fish or to camp uh, in these same places that I did. That meant so much to me when I was growing up. I mean, did did your kids have that same impact on you? Oh, yeah. Hundred percent. I mean it it just um
2: it widens your frame of reference so much where you know it's 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 very easy, it's very human to at least at first you know, our first instinct is to think about how does this impact me and my life, right? That's that's a very human Thing to do is to yeah. think about how does whatever impact your life, and so we might say, well, I'm 34 years old now, so maybe I've got 50 more years. So I'm thinking, okay, what's what are things going to look like, you know, in 2060 or 2070 or 2050, whatever, like those years when I'm going to be around. But all of a sudden, when you add a whole nother generation, and now it's a generation that I have a direct connection to, of which I would do anything for, and now my two sons, um, then all of a sudden you 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 have to think longer term too. And you have to think about, you know, it just becomes so much more personal. It goes from trying to do something because, you know, it's the right thing and it might be self-serving for you or your friends or your community to all of a sudden now you have this little new life form who you (laughs) want to enjoy everything that life has to offer and to enjoy and experience and be inspired by the same things that inspired you. Uh, And it makes it personal and meaningful in a different way. Um, so, you know, now I'm hoping that 2100 that we can have something worth living for when my boys are, you know, still out there getting after it, hopefully at, I guess 80 years old, (laughs) hopefully they're still getting after it then. Um, but, but yes, I think that's, I think that's a pretty natural thing. It just widens your frame of reference and your sphere of, of, of care. Um, it's more than just me now. It's, it's, uh, it's them too. And then if we can expand it beyond that to the larger world, then, uh, then things matter even more.
1: Yeah. And, you know, that's, I think, for, for people who are, are just getting um, more involved in conservation or are just becoming or starting to take a more active role, the hard part about conservation sometimes is it's the long game. It's always the long game. Right. You're always looking for or you're always trying to do things that are going to, you know, make an impact for 20 years down the road, 30 years down the road. Right. I mean, I think uh, Jared had had told the story on here one time about these uh, volunteers in Wisconsin um, helping restore elk habitat and, and things like that, knowing full well that they were never going to have the opportunity to even apply for an elk tag uh, in Wisconsin uh, when the time comes or when the time came and they they just saw the importance of it right it's it's always looking down the road um about what's going to have this greater this impact for the greater good and being able to kind of to kind of see the forest through the trees right
2: yeah very true what do they say the best time to plant a tree was 20 years ago or today right <laughs> i mean it's um you got to do what you can be, even if you're not going to enjoy the benefits of it right now. Like you said, a lot of the stuff's long-term, but I will also tell you selfishly as, as a person who, if you go out and do some of this stuff, even if the impact on the ground, let's say planting a tree, even though you might not be able to enjoy the benefits of planting that tree, um, for 20 years or maybe you're planting an apple tree and you are hoping someday deer will eat those apples and it'll improve your hunting and that's not going to happen for five years or 10 years even though that stuff's in the long term there is a very tangible immediate kind of psychological upside to just doing this stuff like doing the right thing getting out there and helping whether it's planting a tree or going to a rally or whatever making a phone call it's going to make you feel a little bit better about the world it's going to Bring a smile to your face, and that stuff—that's no small thing either. So uh, there's there's short term and long term, and it's it's all it's all good.
1: Yeah, and those little things snowball too. You do one thing, you, you see the the potential positive impact, you feel good about what you did, and then it makes you want to look for that next thing, right? And it just it it, it creates a groundswell, hopefully, and that other people want to get involved. They see what you're doing, um, they see the impact that you're having, and uh, yeah. It, It's all positive stuff in the, in the end. Yeah. Yeah, it really is. So as we kind of wrap things up here, I mean, what's, what's next for you, Mark?
0: Ah,
2: man, very broad Um, question. Yeah, it is a big question. Um, and it's, you know, one of those things I'm wrestling with a lot myself. Um, you know, I don't know specifically what is next for me. um, all I can tell you on a more broad level is that I am dedicated to working on these kinds of issues, working for wild animals and wild places, conserving these resources we have and these just, just incredible opportunities we have to get out there and enjoy them. Uh, you know, that's what I'm dedicating my life to, so... You know whether it's the next book I write, which there certainly will be more books, whether it's the next podcast I do, whether it's the next whatever, next big project, um, in some form or fashion, that's the only thing that really matters to me now moving forward. Um, so that is kind of the sun that I think all of my career decisions uh, and most all other decisions, I guess, kind of revolves around now. That's you know, other than providing for my family, my immediate family, right. It's, it's that. And then this mission, that's, that's it for the next 50 years of my life or 70 years or 20 years or two years, whatever (laughs) I've got left. Um, it's going to be making sure that these places and animals and critters and opportunities are still around. That's, uh, that's, what's getting me up in the morning and and I'm going to keep on trying to find ways to do that, uh, small and, and large.
1: Yeah. Well, I think that that's certainly uh, a good North star to follow is, is keeping those things in mind and, and having that kind of be your, your daily and lifelong goal is to just to keep, um, you know, improving and spreading awareness and, um, you know, fighting the good fight. Yep. 2022, uh, anyone that's followed you on Instagram um, certainly knows about, you know, whether it's your, your fly fishing trips, your Western whitetail hunting, your Western big game hunting. I mean, Is there anything that you have in store for 2022 that you're super excited about, uh, you know, hunt or trip wise that you can talk about?
2: Uh, Let's see here. Um, You know, I've got some cool deer hunts planned coming up this fall in some new places. Um, But I think, you know, coming off of my busiest whitetail year ever, I, I traveled the country, went to nine different states last year, explored a whole bunch of different ways to hunt and different cultures, different things within the whitetail world. Very interesting. Uh, but it was also very draining. Um, <laughs> I'm looking at 2022 as more of like a recharge year from that perspective so I wanna you know spend a little more time at home, get up to my cabin with my dad and my sons um, do some things like that uh, but but two things I'm excited about outside of my day job aspect of stuff would be uh you know doing a and I haven't done this maybe ever or not since high school. I mean, in a big way, I'm planning a uh, just a just a week long backcountry fishing trip. Um, usually all my trips are hunting related, since that's most of my job uh, is mostly focused on hunting. So usually if I do trips like that, it's, it's usually revolving around that. And I take that back. I've done like I've done trips like that, I guess, with my wife. But me and some buddies, um, I guess I've done. I take back everything I've said. I've done plenty of fishing trips like that. I'll say you talk about it in your
1: book, one of your fishing I trips.
2: <laughs> I know. I guess it feels like in immediate memory. In the last couple of years, I've been so busy with my day job stuff that I haven't taken time to like go on a week long fishing trip. Um it's been a lot of other things. So this year, me and some buddies are gonna just get off the grid and fish and camp or float or something and, and not do that for work at all. And that's just gonna be like just get out there and Remove any of the stress or the pressure of of the work side of things, and I can't complain about that. But sometimes it's nice to um, to get outside, just to be outside. So I'm going right. to do a trip like that, um, and and more high level. Uh, you know, I'm super super lucky to get to spend a big chunk of time out west. We we have a cabin out there on the Idaho, out in Idaho. So my wife and family will be heading out there in a little over a month for the summer, and I'm just really excited to get out there where uh public lands are right outside our door there's four great rivers right outside the door there's a lot of fishing and hiking and floating and camping to be done and uh, i'm chomping at the bit to to get to doing all all that stuff so very excited to spend some time in my uh my home away from home which is the uh greater yellowstone ecosystem of idaho montana and wyoming and uh just uh, being outside as much as i possibly can
1: yeah that's uh that's that's enough to i mean just spending the time um, at your place out west there is is more than more than enough to keep you excited we um i like i said our uh the summer uh, or the fall late summer early fall of 2019 2020 i guess yeah 2020 uh my my wife and i rented an rv and spent the month of september um road tripping around um the west uh we started we drove as far as boat bozeman was our first stop and tooled around there for a few days, uh, headed down to Yellowstone, spent a few more days there down into Utah, into Colorado. And then, um, from there headed back home. And it was an amazing trip. Uh, it's, you know, I've, I've spent a decent amount of time out West in my life. Um, but my wife hasn't my kids. Um, I wish they were a little bit older when we did it, um, so that they could really appreciate it, uh, a little bit more, but you know, memories and, and trips like that i mean that's that's something that you can look back on forever and, and being able to to have a homestead out there uh is is something that you'll make a, a lifetime of memories enjoying for sure
2: yeah yeah super uh super thankful for that and i'm
1: looking at a wall of pictures right now
2: of uh of some fish of some mountains of some tents of two little cute boys climbing on rocks and uh, it's just bringing me a lot of smiles right now even though i'm sitting in an office with rain and sleet and snow hitting the window outside of me on a dreary day. Uh, the memories and pictures from those other places
1: are uh, are bringing me a lot of joy even now. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Mark, thank you a ton for taking some time uh, to sit down with me and, and talk about your journey into conservation, you know, what uh, conservation has meant to you, what you're trying to do for the world of conservation going forward. Uh, and, you know, I, I definitely think that for our generation, um, you know, you've definitely become kind of a, a voice, uh, for people to look to. Um, and you know, I, I certainly thank you for that. And, uh, again, thank you for your time today.
2: That's been my pleasure. Appreciate it. Keep on doing the good
1: work too. All right. Thanks Mark. Take care. All right, well, there you have it. Uh, A big thanks to Mark for joining me on the podcast today. I would also like to thank the partners of the podcast, Wild Rivers Coffee and Stone Glacier, as well as 2% for Conservation. If you're interested in learning more about 2% for Conservation, you can visit their website, fishandwildlife.org, and there you can see all the certified brands that have committed to conservation that you should support when you shop. I also encourage you guys to give 2% a follow on social media, where they're going to post only positive content so you enjoy their conservation focused posts in your feed. So again, if you'd like to learn more about Two Percent for Conservation, you can look for them online on social media or at fishandwildlife.org. Thanks for joining me this week, everyone. Um, be sure and check out theaverageconservationist.com uh, where you can catch up on all the latest episodes as well as pick up some gear to help support conservation as well. So as always, stay safe out there and remember that conservation starts with you. <laughs>